Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 325, recorded November 2nd, 2011, TCP, part three. Security Now is brought to you by GoToAssist Express. Being in IT and not using the right tools can be disastrous. That's why you need GoToAssist Express, the leader in remote support. Try it free at gotoassist.com slash security now. And by Ford, featuring voice-activated Sync AppLink. Now you can control select smartphone apps with your voice, so you keep your hands on the wheel and your eyes on the road. Check it out in the 2012 Ford Fiesta and at Ford.com slash technology. And by Carbonite Online Backup. Automatic, continual, and unlimited backup for your computer files for only $59 a year. Try it free at Carbonite.com. And don't forget to use the offer code SECURITYNOW to get two bonus months free with purchase. It's time for Security Now. Hello, everybody. Leo Laporte here, and there he is, Mr. Steve Gibson of GRC.com. The cheerful. you up. How are you cheerful? I would be so, you know, in fact, after this show, I'm often a little bit glum because I, feel, I always feel like the bad guys are, are winning on this stuff. Yeah, we're just spectators, Leo. We and our listeners were sitting back watching all of the packets fly, and Lord knows what's going to happen. Better sitting back than sitting ducks. And I guess if you listen to this show, you're at least you can say, I'm not a sitting duck. I think that's absolutely <laughs> true. <laughs> so today, no uh, part two, no, part three of our TCP explanation. Yeah, um, the... What I wanted to what I wanted to talk about, and I thought I was going to initially, was this interesting next generation application layer protocol called Speedy S P D Y, which Google and the Chromium project are working on, and which the, the thing that put it on my radar was that it's going to be in our Kindle Fires when they come in a couple of weeks. That's the technology used for for dramatically speeding up web access. And, you know, we've often talked about HTTP, which is the traditional web protocol, the application layer protocol, meaning that that we have the, the underlying protocols, which we've been talking about recently, you know, the IP protocol and then ICMP, UDP, TCP. Those are transport layer protocols part of what what's regarded as sort of the 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 underlay underlying transport of data but the application layer runs on top of that that is tcp is is the carrier for http packets well what google because they're so web focused and i'm really glad that they are what they recognized was that the web has changed dramatically in the last decade, certainly in the last two, since 
HTTP was originally conceived, the nature of pages, the type of content, the way pages are being used is very different from what it was. And HTTP is beginning to show its age. There are there are many things we could do now taking advantage of higher bandwidths, stronger servers, and and helping us to deal with the, just the complexity of today's pages. So this speedy protocol is really interesting in that it addresses those things. But as I as I sort of laid out what I want to talk about, I realized that many of the problems it solves require an understanding of TCP that we don't have yet. Uh-huh. So I said, okay, we I, we got to knit, knit, lay down another layer of TCP understanding in order to get what it is that that the speedy protocol, which runs on top of TCP, helps to solve. So today we're going to look more closely. We, we've, we've, we've already looked a couple times at, um, at some aspects of TCP. Now we're going to look at what it takes to get as much speed as you can, because that's, of course, what everyone wants, over a packet-switched connection. Because it's very different when you think about it to be sending blobs of data off. And the question is, how fast can we go? And how do we know how fast we can (laughs) How how do we know how fast we can go? And that's what happens. You just saw it. If you try to go too fast, (laughs) it fall apart. Yeah, the message does not get through. So that's today's topic. It's going to be a great well, we're gonna we're gonna get to uh, get to the topic of the hour in just a bit, and of course, there's security news and updates yep. as always. Before we do that, though, I'd like to uh, mention our friends at Citrix, the makers of GoToAssist. Uh, they just showed me the future path, you know, the product path. I can't talk about it yet, but the product You're path. Still for teasing us about this. Leo. I know it's so cool. You're gonna really want it, but, it, but here's the beauty of it. Um, this is what do they call this? Software as a service, SaaS. SaaS. Yep. Um, I don't know if this is te- – I guess it is SAS because here's how GoToAssist works. You you uh, sign up for it, and you can do it for free for 30 days right now. I'll give you the, the, the place to go for that in a second. But you sign up for it, and you it's basically a Java program you install on your computer. And then whenever you want to support somebody remotely, you send them a link, and they install the Java client on their side. And uh, and by the way, it's very easy for them. They don't, they don't, under- they don't have to know what's going on. Basically, they click the link. It says there's, a, you know, the allow, you've seen this before, the allow screen pops up. So you tell your client, okay, click this link. When it says allow, allow it. And that's it. They're done. And it's very fast. These things are really efficient little packages. And now you're in and you're fixing their machine remotely. Uh, and it's beautiful because it uses NAT traversal. It goes through the GoToAssist server at all times. You log on into that account. So there's no, you know, port forwarding. You don't have to support the support tool. Which is, you know, I mean, like, look, at you don't have time to do that. Um, it's uh, 128-bit SSL. And it has features for support professionals that I think you're going to really appreciate. Things like the ability to do eight sessions at once, unattended sessions as well. Uh, you could do an assay that will tell you what's uh, going on on the system and so forth. Go to Assist Express. Now, because it's SaaS, you always have the latest version. Your client always has the latest version. That's automatic. And when these new features are rolled out, you're going to be amazed. 
Charlie M in our chat room says, I love GoToAssist. Yeah, if you're, in a, if you're a support professional, I hope you know about GoToAssist. Visit the website, gotoassist.com. Click that orange. Actually, no, I guess we have a special URL just for Security Now listeners. It's gotoassist.com slash security now. Even better. There we go. And, uh, and you can sign up right there free for 30 days. If you go to that URL, also we get Steve gets credit for it, so that's important. Search, go to assist.com slash security now. Try it free. Try it with your you know your most difficult intransigent clients, those that you know you just never been able to get <laughs> to, to follow instructions or in. your your family members. Yeah, grandma would be good, and uh, you'll be amazed. I love it, and unlimited use too. One flat fee. They have day passes, but the monthly is the best deal. Go to assist.com free for thirty days. Go to assist.com slash security now. Uh, let's, uh, I imagine there's a few security updates in the uh, hopper today. Things have been quiet, actually, no. on the update scene, um, happily. Uh, we do have a bunch of news, though. I, uh, I got a lot of it from the SANS newsletter, um, which just sort of, uh, this is a newsletter I've been subscribing to for years, and I would really recommend it. I've referred to them throughout the entire length of the podcast. Someday I would love to get you just to write down the stuff you do to keep up on this stuff. The newsletters, the websites, all that stuff. What I do often now, thanks to Twitter, is watch my own feed because people are just, our our listeners are just so great about sending me stuff for and I'll, I'll, I'll see something and click a link and open a tab. That's actually one of the reasons I end up with so many tabs in my browser is they're, <laughs> they're placeholders for things I want to get back to for research that I'm doing. People mention things. And I go, oh, yeah, I'll, that looks good. I'll come back and read that later. But, well, so it's at SGGRC, by the way. So if you want yep. to follow Steve or feed Steve, you can do it there. Yeah. Um, so the EFF has done a study. They have um, something they call the SSL Observatory that we've talked about a couple mm. times. And I have it in my notes here to do a complete podcast on it because it's very interesting. It's basically an uh, internet watching system that watches SSL traffic and builds lists of things going on. And what came to their attention was that four major certificate authorities – have been compromised in the last four months. Four. Four. So we all, heard, is, we all heard about the Dutch one, but this is four. Yeah, DigiNotar, of course. Um, and Komodo, i do not even sure if Komodo was part of this, but um, there are the so-called certificate revocation lists, these CRLs we've talked about, mm-hmm. is one of the means for, for a browser to verify that the certificate it has is still trusted because certificates expire, but it may sometimes be necessary to revoke them. I've, for example, taken advantage of that system when, and I don't remember now what it was, it was a few years ago, but I needed to supersede a certificate that was otherwise still valid with another one. I, I had to change something about it or I was experimenting. I don't remember what now, but, but, I found that, and it was funny because I got some feedback from people who said, "Say, hey, you know, my browser just said a certificate was revoked. And it's like, well, yeah, but, you know, it was on purpose because I've got a new one. And so somehow they weren't seeing the new one or their browser was telling them, you know, something was going on with GRC. But 
in the CRL, the Certificate Revocation List, there's a reason for the revocation specified. And they are, there's a, there's a null, it could just be not specified, or the affiliation was changed, the CA was compromised, that is the, the certificate authority who issued the certificate was compromised, the certificate was put on hold, the certificate was formally ceased operation, so it's a way of sort of like formally shutting down your use of a certificate, a key compromise, and I and, and in the in the list of these, surprising how many how many in terms of count key compromises there were. So that would mean that, for example, the owner of the certificate, like an Amazon.com, just draw an example would have lost their private key, which the certificate um, contains the matching public key. So if, that, if they realize that they no longer control the key for the certificate they're issuing, that's not safe because it allows other people to, um, to intercept and, and decrypt their traffic. So, so key compromise would be another reason that you would administratively revoke a certificate. Also, privilege withdrawn, superseded, as I mentioned before, an unspecified reason. So, so this SSL observatory has been collecting data, and uh, what they found was that there was there had been in the last four months a a substantial jump in the number of certificates revoked for reason of CA compromise. And when they weeded out the duplicates and like the CA, um, the, the same CA saying that it had been compromised and so a number of certificates were withdrawn, they found that there were four, which um, were now claiming that that was the reason for withdrawal. So that, that represented an interesting uptick in in the rate at which this is happening. And I liked what... Uh, the um, the Sands editors had to say, um, ed- editor whose last name is Liston said, the entire SSL certificate system is founded on the faulty premise that we should trust a corporation simply became be, simply because they claim to be trustworthy. These companies have taken on a huge responsibility as part of their business model, and have simply not taken the kinds of precautions one should take when voluntarily positioning oneself as the basket containing all of the chickens. And Murray... (laughs) In um, other words, don't put all your chickens in one basket. Yeah, but unfortunately, as we know, that's the way the CA system works. We have 600-plus certificate authorities that our browsers trust. And the model, unfortunately, is such that Every single one of them must do a perfect job in order for the system to work. Uh, if any one and, is, in, is, is bad, like DigiNotar, then you're screwed. Exactly. And, and that's why our really old-time listeners will remember the shock that I shared once many years ago when I looked at after a long time ago. I remember there were like 12 certificate authorities and that's you know verisign and and thought and a couple others it was like oh that seems manageable then i looked and it, it this list had exploded 
without my having noticed. And I remember sharing with you, Leo, and our listeners is like, oh my God, this is not good. And, you know, that's what it turned out to be. Um, the Another editor said, we do not have, we do not have to have a perfect system of key management, but vendors who want to offer services in the security space have to have good security. Their brands are essential to their viability and they are very fragile. And of course, that's exactly what we saw with DigiNotar, which is now bankrupt because they didn't have good security. In fact, we learned that some of their passwords were ridiculously weak and they're gone now. So, yeah. Um, I also picked up a little blurb uh, also from Sands that said uh, that a UK high court judge has just given the British Internet service provider uh, BT, which I think is British Telecom, two weeks to implement a plan to block a site Newsbin2, N-E-W-Z-B-I-N-2 which is a membership-only site known for making pirated content available. The ruling is a result of a lawsuit brought by none other than the U.S. movie companies. Oh, boy. Our friends at the MPAA. The judge decided that BT was aware of the copyright infringement activity occurring on the website Newsbin 2 and had ruled in July that the company must prevent its customers from being able to access that site. The judge, now here's also the point that was brought up as being a real problem by these editors. The judge also ruled that the costs of implementing the order should be borne by BT. So let's step back a minute from this. This says that a random service provider, I mean, the BT didn't do anything wrong, they're just the target of this lawsuit brought by the U.S. movie companies. And a judge has ruled that they, the ISP, have an obligation to block their customers' access to this one particular website, which is known to make pirated content available at their cost. So... Anyway, uh, the editor, Murray, in his edit, little editorial comment, said something that just jumped out at me. I, want, I, loved, I wanted to share it with our listeners because it was just, uh, I mean, uh, I'm sure this will be retweeted by the people who are listening live and, and others when, when they hear it. So Murray said, it seems to me that BT is a victim here. They're being made responsible for the criminal activity of others. They are being forced to do something both expensive and ineffective. And here's this line I love. He said, the Internet routes around censorship. I just, I love that. It does. You know, we've talked about packet routing. Well, on a higher level, the Internet routes around censorship. I think that's just a beautiful phrase. And he said, how much damage are the rest of us supposed to endure because the publishers cannot figure out how to offer their products at a price both both profitable profitable to them and not so high as to create a black market. Now, okay, I would argue a little bit that the internet creates so little friction in in the 
area of, of piracy that it's not clear to me that you could have products which are both profitable sufficiently to, to support the expense of creating them and also not so high as to create a black market. I mean, it's just, it's just too easy to, and, and simple to, to steal bits on the internet. But I do love that phrase, the internet routes around censorship. And the other editor, Liston, said, this all sounded somewhat reasonable up until the last sentence. If the movie companies expect ISPs to block access to sites at their behest, then they really should be footing the bill. They own the copyright. They benefit financially from its protection. So expecting a disinterested third party, the ISP, to cover the costs of implementing a block on infringing websites seems a bit over the top. <laughs> so anyway, I certainly agree with those things. And it's a little troublesome that that an ISP is, is being told you have to prevent your customers yeah. from accessing this particular website. Um, a judge has ruled it and they have to um, provide, you know, support the cost and provide the technology of doing so. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, we talked a couple of weeks ago about remote access to Medtronic insulin pumps. You'll remember that, Leo, because um, your comment was was at the time correct, which was that you know it didn't seem like it was that big a problem, and you had to be very close to them. Well, turns out this this reminded me of Bruce Schneier's great quote, where he said, "Attacks never get worse; they only get better." Oi. The attackers um, only get smarter. Exactly. They don't get dumber. Um, so a researcher who last year developed a method of taking control of ATMs so they would dispense cash at his behest has now devised an attack that allows him to take control of certain wireless insulin pumps. The attack could be used to deliver incorrect doses of insulin to patients. The pumps in question, which are made by Medtronic, contain radio transmitters that allow doctors and patients to make adjustments. With specialized equipment, the attack could be conducted at a distance of up to 300 feet and no longer requires the attacker to know the device's serial number. The pumps at present do not use encryption while transmitting information. So, so when we reported on this earlier, the distance was much lower and you, do, you did need to know the serial number of the device. Well, the attack has improved. And it's no longer necessary to know that. And the distance has improved as well. And I remember that we, we, in one of our Q&As, we got feedback from a user. Um, um, he and his son were both users of these devices. And... I'm just recalling this now. I think this might have been the Q&A that Tom and I did, Leo. So I don't think it was you and me. Um, but the what I remember coming out of that was that the great danger would be that um, a large dose of insulin could be dumped into the person's <sighs> bloodstream. Could kill him, of and course. Of course the, yeah, exactly. And it could have fatal consequences. So... So I hope uh, the security on these devices is fixed quickly and that if anyone has them, they may want to, I mean, our, our, our listeners being security aware may want to be at the front of the line for getting an improved device. Yeah. Um, we've got 
troublesome legislation uh, that's been submitted to uh, in the House of Representatives in the U.S. There is now a bill that would increase the government's authority to shut down websites that offer products that violate copyright and trademark laws. We've seen, you know, this sort of legislation being talked about before, but this is only last week. Another bill has been introduced. This proposed legislation would allow the Justice Department to obtain court orders requiring ISPs in the U.S. to stop resolving DNS for the offending websites. The sites would still be accessible outside the U.S. The bill would also allow the government to support, to order search engines to remove certain websites from their results. And what's really odd, and I don't understand what this means, and unfortunately things that are not well specified are always sources of trouble in the law, it says the attorney general would also be granted the authority to block distribution of workarounds to allow access to blacklisted sites. So, so, you know, our technical listeners, which are probably pretty much everyone here who's been following along. <laughs> everyone who's still awake, yeah. Yeah, we know <laughs> we know that 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 DNS prevents the you know, blocking DNS prevents a user from from resolving the the domain name into the IP address. So all you have to know if you were a pirate who wanted to access these sites is the IP address. And you could use, you know, somebody else's DNS servers to get that rather than using your own ISP's DNS servers. And so it's, uh, it's I don't know what it means for the attorney general to be granted the authority to block distribution of workarounds. But, you know, that's worrisome. It doesn't sound good, yeah. It does not sound good. Yeah. Um, and uh, Symantec also noted that they had seen a concerted attack against chemical and defense companies with targeted attacks using a tool that they call Nitro, which is based on a readily available Trojan uh, known as Poison Ivy. And these are these attacks are being launched um, largely at computers in the U.S. and the U.K. and Bangladesh for some reason. Um, uh, but there were 17 other countries targeted as well. And they're being launched through email attacks sent to IT departments uh, at these targeted organizations pretending to be requests for meetings or warnings about unpatched Adobe programs. So unfortunately, they're email that, you know, IT departments would tend to believe because yeah. who, would, who wouldn't believe something about <laughs> Adobe? Um, and unfortunately, uh, these targeted attacks uh, are infecting people with with this poison ivy malware or Trojan that allows people to gain uh, backdoor remote access. And a number of people in Twitter uh, sent me this news. You may have seen it also, Leo, that there is now a Mac OS X Bitcoin mining malware. Yeah. Uh, so it's malware known as Devil Robber, which has been detected on Mac OS X computers. It makes its way onto computers by being bundled with Mac applications available on file sharing networks. Devil Robber has several components. It attempts to steal usernames and passwords. 
tries to steal users' Bitcoin wallets. So if there's existing money, you know, currency in the Bitcoin wallet, it tries to steal that. And also hijacks computers' processing power to conduct Bitcoin mining. Um, so anyway, that's that's also happened. And I guess that was, uh, we, you know, are we've you still, talked, Are you still hot on Bitcoin? I mean, I think it's kind of over, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. I mean, they uh, crashed. The market crashed for it. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say I was ever hot on it, but I thought it was really interesting um, crypto technology. Right, right. And it was, you know, it was it, it was cryptographic stuff that we've studied and understand on the podcast applied to something completely different mm -hmm. than communications. You know, it was like, okay, we're we're going to make a currency and make it secure, and they really did. You know, they they did the crypto right, but it's you know all the other all the social side of stuff right. has been, of course, the problem. And I did want to mention that I'm seeing backpedaling on this Dooku Trojan. Uh, remember that we, we mentioned that there was a lot of fervor a couple of weeks ago saying that it was re closely related to Stuxnet. Right. Um, now people are beginning to say, well, now we're not thinking that's so much the case. It's turning up all over the place, all over the world. So it is propagating and it's getting itself around, although researchers are not yet clear about this thing's intentions. So and it's funny, as I wrote that, that note to myself, I thought, okay, what world are we living in <laughs> where, where we're concerned about the intentions of something that's like loose on the internet and operating autonomously? Oh, just I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the camel's nose in the tent, you it know? I mean, it does feel a little bit mm, daemon -like. What are the intentions of that malware? <laughs> and so two things from the Twitterverse. Matt Yackel... Uh, uh, sent, he said, okay, SGGRC, you're right. My Firefox 7.0.1 was about 800 megs of RAM this morning. I killed it and restarted, now 250 megs. Two minutes later, it's up to 320. And he did the, the pound sign fail in his tweet. Um, and then on the same lines, Sean T., whose handle is at Sean T6, said, Hi, Steve. Try out Memory Fox. It really works and reduces Firefox memory use. It's at the Mozilla add-ons page. And when I went over to, to, to uh, get the, the, the actual name for this person who was using the handle Sean T6, and I saw that he was Sean T, I saw that he'd also tweeted, Testing Firefox 8. I can say Mozilla has awakened. And I'm not really sure what he means by that, but then he continues. But another add-on called Memory Fox has fixed the memory bug. I need to load 100 tabs. So, like me. <laughs> why? Why? Like why? <laughs> need or want? Need or want? That's my question. Yeah. Sean is a tab user yeah. the way I am. And uh, so I have hope. Uh, I found Memory Fox. I haven't checked to see whether it's compatible with <clears throat> my Firefox 3. Point something or other because uh, I went all the way back to 3 in order to protect myself. I, I, uh, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. I've, people said Firefox 7 fixed the problem. Now we know from Matt that, that 7 did not fix it. 
that it's still got a problem. Can, can maybe, I ask you, though? I mean, I, we, get, we get on the radio show, I get calls all the time. Well, my gosh, my Windows has no memory free. And modern <laughs> operating systems are designed to let apps use all the memory they need uh, as long as it's available. I mean, why let, you know, if you have a ton of memory, as we all do now, why let it sit fallow if an application can use it? The key is not whether the application's using it, but whether it releases it when politely asked, Right. Or, or it's not needed. Well, c- kind of. I noticed, for example, that when I'm running um, IIS, Microsoft's Internet Server, I've run a copy on my system here because I use it for you know developing websites and, and all of my uh, JavaScript code and everything. So, for example, at this moment, the, the IIS process is using 5.8 meg of memory yet its virtual machine size is 260 meg so what that means is that it has allowed itself to be moved out of memory it's actually it's got a small little footprint in actual memory yet most of it 200 you know again it's like six little less than six megs of actual memory being used but it's allocated 260 megs most of which has been swapped out and is is sitting on on the hard drive, which is, you know, really good behavior. Firefox, on the other hand, right now, I'm looking at the memory stats, is using 271 meg of my memory. And I've got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, about 15 tabs open. But how much, how much memory do you have? 280 meg. Yeah, but wait a minute. How much memory? Megs. But how much RAM do you have? Four gigs. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, shouldn't and it just use as much as it needs until it needs somebody else needs it and then release it? I don't think paging, unless you need to page, is a good idea because that slows you down. Well, okay, but why is it then that I come in in the morning and I'm getting a message saying that I'm out of, I'm completely out of all memory? That you don't want to see. <laughs> And Firefox is 1.5 gig. Right. That with that that it's is a just, memory leak. But that, but I'm saying that people often will get upset because there's no free RAM. But that is how modern operating systems work. Programs allocate RAM as needed and then release it if other programs need it. There's no reason to release it prematurely. Uh, it slows down operation. So if if Firefox is prefetching a lot of pages or doing, I don't know what it's doing with all that memory, but let's assume that it's doing something reasonable with that memory. As long as it releases it when it's needed, but otherwise you've got eight gigs just sitting there. Um, you want to um, use as much RAM as necessary as long as there's free RAM when needed, right? Well, there really is no give us back the memory you're not using API. Sure there I mean, is. No, there isn't. You can't ask an application to give up memory. Really? I thought all modern operating systems. No, they're not. They're not sure? elastic. Oh yeah, they're not. I mean, I, <laughs> I've been. Well, I'm not talking about Malik and, and Calic and all that stuff. I'm. Uh, right. I, I mean, uh, I. Well, all right. I mean, I may yeah, be wrong. Only, yeah, there there isn't a. You know, hey, do you really need what you're what you've got the. I think, well, I what, think that there's a way to to mark the memory you've allocated uh, as uh, 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 releasable. Well, okay, but that yes, you're able to lock it in memory, or you're able to say you could you can you can release it for the OS to swap it out. Right. But the presumption is when you access it, it'll be there. So so you can definitely 
page lock memory to keep it in in active RAM, or it is much better behavior. And I think that I'm sure that's what 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 you're thinking of to to let the memory that you don't actually need in real time sort of more like reference stuff to be swapped out. The problem is that, for example, 32-bit operating systems have an app have an actual physical limitation of four gigs of of allocation. That is, that's what 32 bits can access. So, so you really, we really need to go to 64-bit OSs in order to to get that much more memory. But I guess I'm arguing that this kind of memory consumption for pages that scroll, called a browser, is ludicrous. I mean, it, it represents a level of slop and waste and poor coding that is just egregious. I mean, granted, browsers are doing a lot these days, but one and a half gigs is just crazy. So I, I, I will <laughs> I stand corrected. Yeah, um, uh, they're just they're yeah. Anyway, um, I did want to mention I had in my miscellanea to mention what I mentioned to you before the show, and that is that for those who are using Gmail, uh, Google just released and the iTunes Store just posted, but you said just pulled away, pulled back uh, a native Gmail app for iOS for iPad, for the iPhone and the iPad. I did get it on my phone because I sucked it in, I guess, before they took it out. But you said that they had just yanked it. Yeah, apparently Google yanked it because of a notification issue. So um, I see ah. it's not there right now. It'll be back. Yep. So yep. soon there will be uh, a native Gmail app, which uh, I think a lot of people will look will be really happy with. Um, and also in Miscellanea, I just sort of thought I would... As I'm tracking XP, the operating system I'm still happily using, and by the way, we have 887 days of support remaining, um, I saw a, uh, a CNews story with the latest desktop operating system market share. XP is still more than any other desktop operating system in the world at 48%. Windows 7 is in second place at 35 Vista at 9, Mac OS 10 version 10.6 has a 4% share, version 10.7 has a 2% share, Linux a 1% share, and all others combined 2%. So XP is still in the lead. Microsoft, of course, is famously pushing companies away from XP, trying everything they can, talking about how insecure it is and Windows 7 is much better and so forth, but there's just so much resistance, mostly on corporations' part, to move. You know, they've they've got their IT departments who understand XP. It does everything they need, and I mean, then just that's my problem too. It does everything I need, and I look at seven, and I think, well, okay, it's bigger, and and I've got to fight with it to get a UI that I'm comfortable with, and so forth. So, XP is still number one at forty eight percent, with Windows seven second place at thirty five. Um, and I did want to share a short blurb from a nerd, a nerd on site nerd, who sent a nice note saying, Steve, I have my own copy of Spinrite that I've been using on clients' machines. I have on occasion suggested it to clients and other nerds, which, of course, I appreciate because that's how we sell more copies of Spinrite. Uh, you know, we're, as you know, Leo, we're relaxed about licensing. I like people who are, who are consultants to follow our our consultants agreement which says 
if you have four copies, then you are free to use it on on your client's machines. Um, and the way the reason I sort of have it that way is that allows a person to get one copy, try it, see how they like it. If they realize, hey, you know, they're profiting a lot from their use of Spinrite, well, it'd be nice if, if GRC was too. And so if you maintain four copies, that we call it either the consultant or the site license, meaning that a, that, that a company that was using it on all of their machines to maintain their computers could also do so if they just keep four copies. Um, anyway, going on, he says, it's a nice tool to have along. I've turned non-booting PCs into booting ones, and in one case, a workstation on a domain with a bad sector in the user's local profile, which caused them to instead log in as a temporary new profile every time they tried. Spinrite read and restored the data, and in a few minutes, they were able to log back on into their original profile and could finish up while I sourced a replacement drive and then cloned it for them. Thanks so much for a great product. So thank you, nerd. Yeah, <laughs> yay. Nerd on site. Before we get to uh, our TCP part three, uh, the, the material you'll need to know before we uh, talk about uh, speed up uh, programs like the on the Kindle Fire, uh, let's talk a little bit about our friends at Ford, talking about speeding things up. I'll tell you what. These are great vehicles. Ford is really changing how cars are developed and the process is iterated. I don't know if you've, uh, you know, if, you, if you've ever looked into this, and I, I have to say we, I learned so much by visiting Ford. The, uh, the, the, the turnaround time for designing a vehicle can be years. You know, they start it, they plan it, three, five years later maybe, the vehicle is actually shipped. The, the Ford folks have really, thanks to the, I think, great leadership, the engineering leadership of uh, Alan Mulally, their CEO, really turned this around to make it possible to create cars, vehicles that are state-of-the-art. But even then, Mulally told me, it's not enough. He wants more. And he said, you know, we can never match the iterative cycle, say, of your smartphone. So what Ford's done, I think, is so smart is they've created an API, they call it AppLink, that lets your smartphone work with your Ford Sync to give your Ford added features as they come out in the phone. Now, this they call it Sync AppLink, and it lets you control smartphone apps with your voice using Ford Sync. I just love this. You'll find it on the 2011 and 2012 Ford Fiesta, for instance. You press a button on the steering wheel, and you can say things to your vehicle like, play my classic rock station, or... Bookmark that song. I want to buy it when I get home. Or thumbs up to that song or thumbs down to that song. If you've got Android, an iPhone, a BlackBerry with the latest BlackBerry OS, you can literally have Pandora controlled by your car. If I were a radio station, I'd be worried. <laughs> you can have Stitcher controlled by your car. That's a great way to listen to us. You, can, you, can, you don't have to download the podcast ahead of time. You can use Stitcher and say, I want to hear the latest security now. And boom, it's on your stereo system in your car. Or this new one, OpenBeak, I love it. It lets you get Twitter updates. It'll read them to you. This is just one of literally hundreds of new high-tech features in Ford vehicles. The great engines that give you incredibly good mileage, but performance to die for. The hybrids, the electrics. 
I love the my key system for teenagers. As a parent of teenagers, I love that 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 lets you set the top speed. You give it's a special key for your teens, and when they get in the car, they can only go a certain speed. They can only turn the volume of the stereo up to a certain level. The fuel light comes on faster, so they can fill up the gas sooner. Uh, I just this is thinking. This is thinking, and I want you to check it out. Go to your Ford dealer. That's the best thing to do, and take a look at the uh, 2012 Ford Fiesta with that incredible Sync app link or any of the Ford vehicles with the available My Ford Touch. And then, of course, visit the website, ford.com slash technology, for a survey of all the new Ford technologies. This is a car company that has reinvented itself for the 21st century and makes amazing stuff. I love the active park. You saw me, in the, you saw me accidentally crash my Ford Flex. <laughs> with the, well, okay, um, I, I don't know what I was thinking. But, you know, when you, the thing is so, so cool. So we were at the test track, so it was completely safe. And, and actually, I think they knew this was going to oh, happen because okay. they had engineers in the cars in front and back, right, to part, set it up. So the, 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 I'm driving with the Ford guy, and, and I think it was Scott Monty on my right. And he's saying, okay, now just press the button, the park button. And I'm, I'm literally, you're driving down the street. And then it says, oh, I see a spot that you fit. And so you, you pull up ahead of that spot. And then you press the other button, and then you take your hands off the wheel. My mistake, I also took my foot off the brake. And that's my fault. <laughs> so, because the, the wheel, it's really cool. The wheel's going, and it parks you. Parallel parks you perfectly. But, but yeah, actually, yeah. Mark McCrary and, and it was in the back seat, and we had Craig back there. Anyway, but then you're supposed to turn off the engine and park, but, it, but I didn't. And so ah. the car's perfectly parked and then slowly rolls into the car behind it. That was my fault. But it's spooky. It's spooky. They've got this bliss thing that will let you know if you're verging into lanes. I mean, this, the safety features are unbelievable. Uh, and simple things like the, the, fuel-less, uh, the capless fuel filler, which I have on my uh, Mustang. I love. I never lose my cab anymore. Look, just check it out. Ford, Ford.com slash technology. We love them. We appreciate them. And by the way, we're having a barbecue. You should come up, Steve. Our Sunday barbecues are coming up. There's one uh, just a, just a week from Sunday, November 13th, and then December 4th. They start at 1.30 p.m. We're going to have a tent out in the street, Ford vehicles for you to take a look at. Going to have some great food. Uh, we've got our the best caterer in uh, Petaluma is going to be feeding wow. us this Sunday. And, uh, and you can watch Twit. And then we're going to be doing a preview of our new gaming show right after. So you can meet Veronica and uh, Brian, uh, our new gaming show hosts. So we're going to have a blast. That's uh, Now, here's what you have to do. Go to twit.tv, click that banner you see there, and uh, sign up because it's really going to be limited. I think we're only going to allow 50 people. There's just not enough room. So uh, if you want to come quick, twit.tv, click the date you can come. You have to be in Petaluma November 13th or December 4th for our special Ford barbecues. I am really looking forward to that. Of course, if you can't be there, you can watch it because we'll be, we'll be streaming it as well. Uh, Ford.com slash technology or twit.tv to sign up for the Ford barbecue. All right, Stevie, let's talk. TCP. Okay. So everybody needs to close their eyes and put their propeller beanies on because this is really cool conceptual stuff. Um, so we, we have a network which, as we know from the How the Internet Works episodes we've done so far, exists sort of as a loose confederation of routers where we 
send data to destinations by addressing them with an IP address and the routers along the way each forward the packets of data, the individual packets of data that they receive to the destination. Now, the question that we haven't looked at yet, we understand about packets and IP addressing, about the TCP protocol that lives inside the IP protocol. TCP adds the note, the abstraction of a source and destination port, where, which it adds to the IP packet, which has the source and destination IP address. Um, we've talked about the need to number the bytes. We use a synchronizing approach where a SYN packet is sent to establish the numbering that the sender will be using for the subsequent data that it sends. The, re the recipient of that sends back a SYN ACK, which is acknowledging the receipt of the SYN and also sending a SYN to establish its packet numbering. So we've got the, the mechanism of data going back and forth. What we haven't talked about yet is speed. And speed is really tricky. It's actually incredibly tricky. So much so that, that even recently, researchers are still working on refinements and tweakings to the, the question of how do we make this system work robustly and give us as much speed as we can get. Now, back before the internet, this wasn't a question. We would have a modem at each end and it was the, it was the connection itself, the, you know, the baud rate as we called it, that established the rate at which the sender could squeeze data through the phone line to the other end. And so the application would just dump a blob of data into a buffer on the modem and basically sit around twiddling its thumbs while the modem, you know, went, you know, got that data through audio tones of various levels of complexity through to the other end. So, so it was a matter of like, just send, you know, put as much data in the buffer and wait for that buffer to drain to the other end. Well, that model isn't anything like what we have now. Now we have this, this loosely connected network and imagine that a sender wants to send a big file. And the problem is that the, the data needs to go in, it needs to be packetized. The packets need to be sent from the, from the source to the destination over a set of links that we know nothing about. We don't know how fast they are. We, we know, we may know the speed of our own connection to our ISP. You know, we're buying a certain amount of bandwidth from our ISP, but, you know, this may, the, the, the data may go over a, a slower part, or there may be a router that it's passing through, which is 
not functioning right or bogged down carrying a lot of traffic because it's a very centralized, located, popular router. And so the router may be having trouble. So, so when you think about it, this question of speed is a real dilemma because, because we may be able to send packets out at a speed faster than they are able to arrive. And, and then there's the other question of what about the sender being able to receive them? We, we, you know, you and I, Leo, were just talking about buffer space in the operating system right. and not having enough memory. So we also need some way of knowing that the sender can receive the data that we're sending. I mean, if it's if the packets are coming in, whether the receiver wants them or not. What if it <laughs> if it doesn't have enough memory? It's like stop. ah, you know, stop. So, so the designers of TCP knew there were going to be all these problems. And, and over time, the approach has evolved. But one of the first things that happened was a concept known as a receive window. TCP uses the word, the, the, the term window, sort of a, from a, just sort of as a, 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 an abstraction for something going on that you need to watch. So every, every acknowledgement for data received, remember that the, the ACK packets are coming back, acknowledging the highest numbered byte which has been received so far. So that if, if acknowledgements don't come back to the data that the sender has sent, the sender thinks, oh, well, maybe the recipient didn't get it. It got lost in transit on the way. Or it could have, the, the acknowledgement packet could have gotten lost in transit on the way back. So the sender sends it again. And so these acknowledgement packets acknowledge the, 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 the highest numbered in order byte that has been received. And that's, I say it that way because remember that the other thing that can happen is the internet can deliver things out of sequence. And if, if, if packets come in out of order, the, rece- the receiver will hold ones that it wasn't quite expecting yet, hope, hoping that the missing pieces get filled in. But the way they handle, the way TCP protocol handles this is it only acknowledges the latest in-order packet. That way, if a, a one was missing in the middle, then that one would never get acknowledged, that the data that it contained would never get acknowledged, so the sender would know that one needs to get resent, even if it had already sent some other ones later on in the stream. So as soon as that packet got received, then the recipient that was still holding the later packets could jump its acknowledgement way forward so that the later ones wouldn't have to get resent. It's really very clever. I mean, it's when you... You look at something basically simple, perfectly thought out. It's very clever. So the question is, one question is, 
How much can we send? Not how fast. We'll get to that in a second. But how much? That, ans- that, that question is answered by every acknowledgement which comes back to the sender containing a 16-bit field in the TCP header, which is called the TCP receive window. And that's just the name of this of this of this 16-bit blob, the 16-bit data field. And what that means is the the value in that field is the amount of buffer space, the the amount of receive buffer that was available at the other end at the time the packet was sent. So when, when that acknowledgement was sent, the, the acknowledger who's receiving data and acknowledging it says, okay, at the moment, I've got this much space available in my receive buffer. So it sends that along with the acknowledgement to tell the sender that that as of and, and, and think about it that that the the acknowledgement also contains an acknowledgement of the highest numbered byte received. So it has that and at that time how much receive buffer was available. So again with just so cleverly what those two pieces of information tell the sender even if the sender has already sent additional data because all of this is sort of happening asynchronously. It's all we're wanting to keep everything moving so there is permission in the system for data to be sent ahead of being acknowledged and that's important because otherwise nothing would go very fast. If we had to if we had to wait for every single packet we sent to get acknowledged, then our total bandwidth would be constrained by something called the bandwidth delay product of the network. That is to say, if we, we, we know that packets can be typically like 1,500 bytes, which is, is the maximum size. We have to subtract some for, from the, um, the header for the packet. 1440 is the typical size. So that's the number I was trying to remember a couple of weeks ago, and I had the MTU says is 1500, but the but but after overhead 1440 is what's right. MSS is the maximum segment size, uh-huh. 1460. Um, anyway, so if we, if imagine that we sent 1460 bytes, and they got there and then were acknowledged, and we we couldn't or didn't send any more until they were acknowledged. Well, so we would never be able to go fast because the round-trip delay through the Internet of waiting for the acknowledgement of what we had sent would and, and the fact that packets are of a certain limited maximum size, we would, we would only be able to send the amount of a packet times the round-trip time to get that packet acknowledged, which would really constrain the speed at which we could operate. So um, um, the designers realized we had to make it possible 
to have data outgoing to a recipient in flight, essentially, and and have that being an advance of acknowledgement. The acknowledgements could be delayed. And, and in fact, senders don't even have to acknowledge every packet they send. It, that it's, if, if data is coming in quickly enough and, and it's been only a short time since the last acknowledgement was sent, the TCP protocol allows the sender to eh, wait a few, get a few more packets so that, so that fewer acknowledgements are being sent just in order to, again, further decongest the Internet overall. So, so this receive window is extremely clever because at the time that that acknowledgement is sent, the this the sender is saying I have received up to this much data from you, the sender, and at that time I've got this much buffer space available. So every acknowledgement that the that is received by the sender tells it at that at the at the time that the receiver had received this much data, this much buffer was still available. So that gives the sender permission, a kind of ongoing permission for how much data it absolutely knows it's able to send. Now, naturally, as always seems to be the case, there have been some attacks, which have some, some warpages, some abuse of something so cool as as this facility let's hold um, off on those yep briefly <laughs> perfect perfect timing because <laughs> i would like to talk a little bit about a defense before you talk about the attacks and that is of course a great backup solution from the folks at carbonite carbonite online backup question for you this could be a painful question prepare yourself gird your loins are you backed up right now what would happen if your hard drive died what would happen if there were a fire, a flood, somebody came in and stole everything? You accidentally threw out the documents and settings folder What and then emptied the trash. What would happen? <laughs> the, the fact is disasters happen. They're going to happen. And to really be protected, you not only need a local backup, you need an online backup somewhere off-site. Something that's going on always in the background, so even the smallest change that you make right now is backed up within seconds. That's Carbonite Online Backup. With Carbonite on a Windows or a Mac computer, and including Lion, your files are automatically, continually backed up, encrypted to the cloud, to Carbonite servers, where they're again further backed up again and again to off-site servers. So your data is safe as houses. Actually, safer than your house. Uh, if you have a computer disaster, simple to restore. But you don't have to wait to a disaster because your data is there and available anytime. It's cloud storage. We don't hit that enough. I mean, it's backup, yeah, but it's also cloud storage. You can access anytime, anywhere. You just log on to your Carbonite account. They even have smartphone apps, tablet apps, BlackBerry, uh, I I iPad. It's fantastic. I want you to try it free for the next two weeks. Go to Carbonite.com and enter the offer code... Let me check. I believe it's, yeah, security now. And uh, you've got two weeks free, no credit card, nothing needed. Just just try it. Just see how it works for you. Usually that two weeks is enough to do your first backup. So from then on, you're safe, right? However, however, if you uh, decide you want to buy, it's less than five bucks a month for 
unlimited backup, everything on your internal hard drive. So on a laptop, that's everything. On a desktop, that's just whatever's inside the computer for just $59 a year, less than 5 bucks a month. And when you use security now as a bonus code when you buy, you get 14 months of the price of 12 Now, what more do I need to tell you? Don't, don't delay. Do not sit there saying, ah, I'll back up someday. Someday will never come, trust me. And that crash will. Carbonite.com. Use the offer code security now. If you got to back it up to get it back. So do it right with Carbonite. All right, Steve, let's continue sally forth on our TCP explanation. So one interesting hack occurred to the hackers, and that is... <laughs> they spent a lot of time thinking about this stuff. Exactly. Constantly. What would happen if we, if we sent back an ACK packet that said zero that is with a window, a TCP receive window of zero, saying, hold on a second, I don't have any buffer space available. Stop sending. And it turns out that, you I mean, you, the system has to allow for that. It has to allow that a recipient, I mean, who knows what the, what the, what, what, what the receiver is doing. They're maybe spooling it off to a printer or to mag tape in the old days or... Or, or you know, waiting for some something to happen, and for whatever reason, they just they there's nowhere they can put any more data that that is that the sender wants to send. So they send back an acknowledgement of what's been received with that with a receive window set to zero. What that tells the sender is stop. There is no room available at the other end for your data. So you can't send any. Now, TCP connections are full duplex, meaning that they inherently go in both directions. They don't actually have to be, interestingly enough. It's possible for, after the connection to be established, for one side to send a FIN packet and shut down the, the, the traffic in one direction, but... That's sort of a, an unusual case, but the, the, the spec does allow for it. Um, but the, in nor, normal case, the, the TCP connection is full duplex. So what happens is if the receiver has sent an ACK packet saying, I don't have anywhere to put any more data, don't send it, then the sender has to stop. It cannot send any more data. What it does is it 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 sends something that's called a window probe a window probe is is an acknowledgement of the last byte number sent by the other end and what that what that does oh I, actually i'm i'm wrong it's been a while since i actually wrote this stuff because i have written all this it it deli the window probe is a deliberate mistake. Ah. It sends one byte less than the last one. It, 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 it says it acknowledges one byte less, and that forces the other end to correct it. That forces an, a, a, an, an acknowledgement packet to be sent by the other end, and every acknowledgement packet contains the current TCP receive window. So that's so this so-called window probe is a 
is a means for getting updated information on the availability of buffer space by the other end. It's very clever. It's a little bit of a, a little bit of a, of a, uh, a hack itself. I mean, like a legitimate hack of the way the TCP protocol works, but that's what our TCP stacks do. If you tell it you, that you have no available buffer, then you'll find yourself receiving these little ACK packets because it kind of wants to tickle you to, to get an update for when you do have data available. The reason hackers have found all of this useful is it is a very nice way of, of capturing bad guys, like, like cre- creating a, a, a black hole or a honeypot, essentially, that, that like worms will fall into. If you've got a worm, which is, is creating TCP connections trying to scan the internet and it creates a connection to you, you can tell it, ah, hi there, happy to connect, but by the way, I don't have any buffer space. And what it does is it hangs the connection. The, the, the other end really can't let go because there's stuff that they're trying to send to you, but you've said, I can't receive it just now, hold on. And so very little bandwidth is consumed Yet, we talked about the amount of resources consumed by every TCP connection. A TCP connection is expensive in terms of the, all of the counters and timers and buffers that need to be allocated in order to manage that connection. So, with us doing almost nothing on the receiving end, we're able to get the worm to stall a connection and if lots of people were to do that, we, it's possible to bring worms to their knees they're, they're, they, because the connections can't get done what they need to, yet they still have to, they have to allocate statically all of the data required to, to manage that. Of course, it, so it, it, would, it would bring them to their knees if they had knees. If the, if the worms, worms do not have knees. I'm sorry, Steve. I not have, knees. have to point Thank that you. out. Yes. Glad you corrected that. <laughs> so so now, we've ta- now we understand how we manage the question of how much we can send. That's with the receive window. The second part of this is how fast can we send it? Because nothing limits us technically except our own local connection to our ISP. That is, you know, whatever it is, the bandwidth we're purchasing, that's a a, a constraint. But, but, We've got a long way to go often between we who are sending the data and where we're trying to get it to. Maybe something along the way can't handle as much as we want to send. How do we know? So what TCP does is something called a, it's called a slow start. And this slow start is one of the problems with the way browsers work in terms of us getting pages loaded quickly. The problem is the TCP stack running in our computer doesn't know how fast it can send something. Now, what we're often sending with a browser is just a little query. So it might just all fit in one packet. And so the packet is a packet. There's no way to send a packet slowly. 
the granularity of the speed at which we send data is in the timing of our packets. So, although I guess you could send smaller packets if you wanted to, like, if you had less to send, normally, as, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, packets are as large as they can be because we are trying to send as much data per packet as possible. But the, the, the sender of our, of our data, that is the, the server we're making a query to, the query might be very small, but we might be asking for something big, a huge file, for example, or a, a, a very large and complex web page. The, the connection in the other direction has to figure out how fast we're able to receive data. Now, we know that if we send data too fast, we can overload routers along the way. That the data will, and we also remember that routers have permission to drop packets. That's part of this funky packet processing scheme. This whole, the whole, the whole packet orientation of the internet. Routers that cannot send data out of their outgoing interface because there's just too much. There's not enough bandwidth. There's, you know, like many incoming. Interfaces are receiving data that are all trying to go out the same one, for example. Routers have the permission by decree, by design, to just drop packets that they can't send. And remember, they never send us an indication because that would further create, that would further increase a congestion problem. So the designers said routers make a best effort to send the data, but when they can't, they drop them. So what does that mean for us as a sender trying to send data as quickly as we can? That is, with a high, as high a packet rate as possible. Well, it means we need to kind of creep up on it. And that's what TCP does. It means we just can't send the data as fast as we possibly can because something somewhere is going to collapse. And boy... If the whole internet worked that way, if everybody on the internet sent as much data as they possibly could, as fast as they could, nothing would work. I mean, <laughs> all the routers would, would be collapsing and, and, and having problems. So by, by universal agreement, TCP being this very clever protocol, it does something called a slow start. There is a it, – it's generally given permission to send some number of – packets without acknowledgement. So the, the, the idea being, let, let's just get things moving here. So, and typically that number is two. And so when TCP starts, it can send two packets off, one after the other, without having the first one acknowledged, it'll send the second. But then it waits. And, and then the rule for throttling is... We allow an, a, 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 the number of unacknowledged packets to increase by one for every acknowledgement we receive. So let's, let's think about that. We, we, we allow the number of unacknowledged packets to, to be increased by one for every acknowledgement we receive. So we first send off two packets as our agreed-upon start. 
we that they get acknowledged. So we have our first acknowledgement. We now we had we were allowing ourselves to send two. Now with the receipt of this first acknowledgement, we increase that by one to three. So we can now send three more packets off without any any further acknowledgement. When an, an, an acknowledgement comes back for whatever we've sent before, we increase that to four. This is known as the congestion window. It's, it's not a window that's ever sent on the line. That is, it's not like the receive window, which is at, at 16 bits of the TCP header that tells us how much data we're able to send ahead. This one is it's a window. It's basically a, a counter maintained by the TCP stack for, for, for the purpose of avoiding connection. The idea being that at some point this is going to break. If we keep increasing the number of unacknowledged packets we're allowed to send by one every time we receive an acknowledgement – at some point, we're going to reach a, a, a limit. And the beauty of this system is that it will, as we start trying to send packets faster than the weakest link, literally link between routers, we, at some point, we, we, we find the point where the weakest link breaks. It drops the packets we're trying to send because we're trying to send them too fast. So acknowledgements from the other end stop because the data is no longer getting through. And what TCP does is if it has failed to receive, and this varies in strategies, over time the strategy, the actual congestion avoidance strategy has varied a lot there's names like Tahoe and Reno um, and, and a whole bunch of other ones that you'll, you'll see if you do some, some Googling and, and Wikipediaing, um, which, are, which specify exactly what the behavior is. But the idea is that, it's, that when the sender realizes that, it is no lo- that its data is no longer getting through because it's missing acknowledgments, it it's, it cuts back its sending rate quickly. Typically, it divides it in half. So it, it dramatically scales it back and then goes back to increasing it. So, so essentially, what this means is that losing packets is the signaling function for we can't send the data any faster. And that the, that the TCP senders at each end of a connection all over the Internet are always sort of – they're trying to go faster than the, than the maximum speed that is available between the two endpoints. That is that weakest link, wherever that is. And they're, they're always pushing it to the limit. So, so given that – that there is a point somewhere that is weaker than their ability to send packets, they're going to find it. 
because they will pump packets out. There's there, as as long as there's data to be sent, and they've got a high bandwidth connection, they will they will the sender will increase the rate of sending. That is the number of outstanding packets, the packets that are allowed to be out there on the fly. As acknowledgments come back, it aggressively keeps moving that number upwards until it pushes it too far. Then it it backs off a lot and then again moves forward. So this is what's actually going on between TCP connections, which are like probably, I don't know what percentage, but the, the vastly greatest percentage of traffic on the Internet are over TCP connections. All of our all of our operating systems down in the kernel in the so-called TCP stack have these counters. And when we're sending a file, when, when, when we're, we're sending a, you know, uploading a big file or we're receiving a web page, the server at the other end is doing the same thing. It's, it's pushing as on individual connection basis, as many packets that have not yet been acknowledged out as it can increasing the packet rate until it hits the point where it starts to fail or stutter, then it backs off and then to sort of allow things to recover and then starts working back up again. And so so that ends up being a sort of a self-throttling system, which given the constraints, I mean, it, it really seems kind of funky and, and, and crude. And you think, well, gee, couldn't they come up with something better than this? You know, I mean, like we, we, go, we go until we're going too fast and we only know we're going too fast because the system starts to break, and then we back off and but start trying again. So, but uh, and again, it's because it's exactly because of this that that networking engineers have have for for years thought, okay, can't we be smarter? How about if we back off less? How about if we back off adaptively? How about if we have more memory than just this? congestion window how about if we have more history and all kinds of things have been done trying to to like find that sweet spot where we're sending data reliably and as quickly as we can yet also sensitive to changes and remember that it's not like the connection between us and some local destination is also constant routers are inherently as you know as 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 when when I'm receiving a web page I'm getting a burst of data it's boom you know out it all comes and here's the page then I look at it for a while click on a link making another request which creates another burst of data so there's these bursts that are happening in a web page model and certainly that's the case with, with, with images being downloaded and, and pages being displayed. So it's all very bursty, which means that that as a, if anyone has ever sat in front of a, of a phone system with a lots of lines, you'll notice, I don't know why this is, but they all start to ring at the same time. Have you ever noticed that, Leo? Yeah. It's like, <laughs> it's, it's weird. I, I, I mean, I, it's the strangest thing. Either I'm just noticing the pattern, but I've, I've talked to people, and it's like they've noticed it too. And, you know, like receptionists have said, it's the strangest thing. It'll be just like quiet for a long all time. All at once. A line of ring, and then another one, another one. And they, they're Life they is bursty. Related. Life yeah. is bursty. And so you can imagine here's the plight of this router that's sitting around like with all this extra bandwidth to spare. And suddenly all this 
data comes pouring into it that it's got to try to send out. Well, it may not be able to. So, so the, the state of the connection between endpoints is also varying with time because it, these packets are having to move across routers whose own traffic may be bursty. And what they were able to, to handle a minute ago, they're no longer able to handle now because there's another burst coming through some other interface. So all of this has to be dynamic and, and adaptive. And amazingly, it works as well as it does. It's just incredible. Yeah. And now that we know all this, in two weeks, I, we can talk about speedy. We can talk about what Amazon, Amazon, what, well, what, yeah, what, what Amazon and the Kindle Fire are doing with their cloud-based browser enhancement, which originated with the Chromium project, which is Google looking at how can we make the whole web faster. And boy, they have succeeded, like 58% improvement. Um, Without in, changing underlying protocols, which is, I think, yes, very interesting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we uh, we got that out of the way. So t you say two <laughs> weeks because next week we're going to do a Q&A. We do feedbacks yep. every uh, mod two episodes, every even episode. So um, if you have a question for Steve about this or any topic having to do with security or science fiction or e-readers <laughs> i think that's i think that's your portfolio you go oh, to by the way i have to i have to say leo there was a wacky uh bit of blurb that a bunch of people tweeted me it turns out that when you load an e-reader full of books it gets a little heavier <laughs> yeah i know yeah i saw oh, that too your Play jewels out. weigh something <laughs> 10 to the minus 18th femtograms or something. I mean, absolutely. It's the, it's the electrons. There's well, you more can electrons calculate it. There's there. more electrons. You can calculate yeah. it. We know the weight of the mass of an electron, and we can easily yes, calculate. They don't weigh very much. No, they don't. Yeah. No. But there's a lot of them. So they, you know, they it adds do up. add up. Yes, they do. <laughs> to something. Somewhat less than a thimbleful. <laughs> uh, GRC.com slash feedback. For questions, suggestions, comments, we'll, we'll go through a few of those next week. GRC is a good place to go, of course, to find Spinrite, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery yay. utility. All is, yay! All his wonderful uh, tools, many of which, most of which, except with the, actually the sole exception of Spinrite, are free. Although there will be a new uh, commercial product emerging soon from GRC. I wish soon, but Someday. started soon. Started soon. <laughs> yeah, I got to get the off-the-grid project finished first, and that's almost done, by the way. It's okay. all functional and, and working. As I told everybody, it would be by the, by this week. It is. I uh, After I let my news group folks play with it, they came up with some really useful improvements to the UI where it was a little – what wasn't – some things that I was assuming weren't really clear, so I'm re-engineering that, but – uh, it's uh, essentially done. I, then I have a few other web pages, you know, the related web pages to catch up on. But uh, it's there. Yay. Um, what else? Uh, lots of, yeah, so there's lots of freebies on the site. Plus 16 <laughs> kilobit versions. Steve has audio, yep. both audio versions and transcriptions. We have audio and video. Uh, not the transcriptions, not the 16 kilobit versions of twit.tv. And you can watch us do this show Wednesdays, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. Uh, that's 1800 UTC at live.twit.tv or twit.tv. We keep both alive. Either one will work. Um, I think that is everything I need to say. Don't forget to sign up for the barbecue. Click that banner at twit.tv for our Ford barbecue coming up on the 13th. And Steve, I'll see you next time on Security Now. Security Now.